If you would turn with me then um, in your Bibles to Psalm 71, uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 24, or we have it printed for you in the uh, in the handout. <clears throat> so uh, I always like to do one more sound check and visual check. Is everything good, Mike? Everything fine? All right. Very good. We're reading from the New English Translation, Psalm 71, beginning at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I've leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. For there's none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O Lord, O God, Who is like you, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will again. I will also praise you with a heart for your faithfulness. O my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre. O holy one of Israel, my lips will shout for joy. When I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Once again, let's pray. Father, as we come to this psalm, this really magnificent psalm, we pray that you would give us such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can understand it and understand it with that kind of understanding where we appropriate it deeply into the way that we think 
to the way that we believe and the way that we would trust you and live out our lives. Uh, Father, we know that you have preserved for us the precious experiences of saints who lived thousands of years ago. Uh, you have done so to remind us that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that you have done for your saints in former times, you are so pleased to do for us again. So enable us by looking at this word, hearing this word, uh, be strengthened in our faith, and able to walk faithfully before you, that we might, for the name of Christ and for the sake of Christ, bear fruit in every good work. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon title this morning is uh, Long Life Faithful God, Part 1. This psalm is one of those God help me psalms. Uh, there's many such psalms that we find in the Psalter. Uh, we could say that, in fact, uh, this kind of prayer uh, is one of the most significant themes that we find uh, throughout the 150 psalms. In particular, Spurgeon calls this particular prayer, Psalm 71, the prayer of the aged believer. But in, in our title, I've tried to say a little bit more about what this really, uh, this, this psalm is all about. And the reason for this title is because, first of all, uh, the psalm writer here is intensely biographical. Uh, he's actually relating the whole span of his life and how the whole span of his life is related to God. Uh, if you look at verse 6, you'll note that he traces his relationship to God all the way back into his mother's womb. And then in verse 9, he speaks of his old age. And that same idea is also repeated in verse 17 and verse 18. Going back to the earliest time of his life, and then speaking of where he is currently as an old believer. Uh, furthermore, we need to see that this psalm gives us a double picture. It's not just the long life of the believer, but it's also a picture of the faithful God that the believer trusted in. And then there's a theme that runs all the way through this particular psalm. Uh, and it, it shows up in the double picture that we have presented to us. That theme is dependency on God. A dependency upon God that we ought to recognize very clearly is by God's design. We are to understand that we are to be led through this life of faithful believing in such a way that we will be constantly dependent upon God. That's what I want us to see. I want us to understand that as we trace through this spiritual biographical account of this faithful believer, as we see his life, and as we see the God that he believed in, our God, that we would recognize that the important message here is dependency upon God. That God has actually crafted and designed our lives in such a way that we will grow and ought to grow more dependent upon him. Now, this is a fairly long psalm. It's 24 verses. And you can see in the handout that it's outlined for you. 
Uh, and that outline indicates that we're going to look at point A, the God who is there, verses 1 through 4, and point B, the believing life, verses 5 through 8. And then we would continue with the persevering life and the God-centered life. Well, that was my intention earlier this week. Uh, when I was first working with this and as I sent information on to Bruce, that was my anticipation, that was my goal, that was my main idea that I would do part A, part B. But actually, um, we're going to spend all of our time this morning on these first four verses, on the God who is there. And further work this week has brought me to the anticipation that each one of these sections deserves its own careful treatment. And so altogether, we'll have four messages upon this particular psalm. And perhaps that is, that's appropriate. If there's anything that uh, we need to hear, we need to understand, is it, really this thing of dependency upon God. We need to understand that God's design for our lives is to live in dependency upon him. So we begin with these first four verses that I've uh, crafted around the idea or the, the, the idea that they are expressing the truth about the reality of the God who is there. So let me read these verses again. The psalmist writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked and from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. So the main idea in these first four verses is this. The God we worship is the God who is there. Now, Many years ago, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, in fact, I was thinking about this, it's probably 50 years ago, that Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book by this title, The God Who Is There. And early on in this book, he, he sets forth his, his main concern and his main thesis. So quoting him, uh, Dr. Schaeffer wrote this, We must not forget that historic Christianity stands on a basis of antithesis without it, Historic Christianity is meaningless. The basic antithesis is that God objectively exists in contrast, that is, in antithesis, to his not existing. Which of these two are the reality changes everything in the area of knowledge and morals and in the whole of life? Now, Schaefer's concern then was to fight the growing idea within our culture, even within all of Western culture, that in all areas of life, especially in religion, what makes your viewpoint legitimate isn't truth. You see, it's not about whether it's true or not, but whether having this belief helps you to get along in life, whether having this belief is genuinely therapeutic, whether having this belief is, is actually good for your mental and emotional health. Uh, that is to say, 
a holding on to these beliefs ought to be good for the purpose of helping you cope with life and good for the purpose of validating who you are. Now, there's a big difference between something being true and something being true for me. But we now live in a culture that has psychologically and legally protected this idea of something being true for me over and against something that is actually true. And what is jarring at times to us, to a certain extent what is confounding to many of us, people really do believe this. Uh, people really do believe that truth is primarily person-related. That whatever a person's particular perspective happens to be, that's truth and reality for them. And, and the fact is, you can't really understand our politics today. You can't really understand the moral changes that have gone on in the last couple of decades until you accept that this is really how things are, that Western culture now has embraced this view of truth, and especially, and most significantly, on the personal level. But note this. This development is an outworking of what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where Paul has said that human beings, fallen human beings, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, as we begin to look at these verses, the proper response for us as Christians is to anchor ourselves in truth. The truth about the God who is there. Now, we find this concept actually contained within verse 1, because the elderly psalmist prays to God using the divine name. That is very significant. Now, our English translations have a tradition of using all capital letters when, in Hebrew, the divine name is actually specified. Uh, the Hebrew uh, is comprised, the divine name is comprised of four Hebrew consonants, which we would translate into English as Y-H-W-H. But this divine name is the very name that God revealed to Moses when Moses approaches the burning bush and when God appoints Moses to be the deliverer of his people Israel, who are in slavery in Egypt, and Moses basically asked the question, well, they're going to ask me who sent me. And so in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he says again, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when our psalmist prays to God here, he prays to the I am who I am. Am the eternal one, the God who exists and has always existed, the God who is there, uh, the God who is not dependent upon anything, but everything else is dependent upon him, the God who is not the figment of somebody's imagination, 
The God who is not a true-for-me God, but the God who has declared himself to actually exist and to have existed for all eternity. That is the God that the elder psalmist here prays to when he prays, In you, O Lord, in you, O divine name, in you, the God who is, I am who I am. In you, Lord, do I take refuge. But we would not be treating this fairly, and we would not be treating this biblically, if we didn't point out its connection to Jesus Christ. It's critically important as we contemplate the God who is there, the God who declares himself to be, I am who I am, to recognize that Jesus identified himself as the I am. In John chapter 8, uh, the second half of that chapter, we have this tremendous controversy that's going on between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. It gets pretty tense. And Jesus is claiming that they don't know God. They don't know who has sent him. Uh, and, and Jesus says this statement that they react to. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews respond and say, you're not even 50 years old. Uh, how, you know, how have you seen Abraham? Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So in John 8, 58, the capstone of what Christ has to say is this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, this is one of the very important themes of the Gospel of John. John records a number of examples where Jesus identifies himself as the I am, which would say to us, that there's nothing in this psalm that we read and understand about God and God's work and the God's relationship to the believer that does not preeminently and in total fulfillment apply to Christ. So all throughout this psalm, wherever we read God or Lord, and especially Lord capitalized, we ought to properly see Jesus. Now, in this prayer, then, in these first four verses, this old believer gives us five notable characteristics about God, which are also about Jesus Christ. And the first of these would be a listening God. Now, this is really the presupposition of the prayer. The, the idea is that uh, the psalmist prays because Christ listens. He hears our prayers. And when he prays in verse 2, uh, incline your ear to me, uh, the psalmist is confident that Christ will do this. 
This is truly one of the most important and fundamental aspects of our lives as Christians. Do you live in such a way that you know that Christ listens and hears your prayers? Because if you really do believe this, then you will pray often. Uh, you will believe that Christ is the great high priest who is seated at the Father's right hand, who's seated on the throne of grace, who is ready to give mercy and grace in your time of need. And you will be moved and motivated to pray about everything. And especially those circumstances where you are praying, God, please help me, kinds of prayers. The psalmist prays because of his deep confidence that God is the God who listens. As a Christian, we have this great revelation of the high priestly ministry of Christ. We pray because we know that Jesus is at the Father's right hand. He hears our prayers. The next characteristic that the psalmist presents as he's praying for help from God is he calls God a righteous God in verse 2. The psalmist prays for help, appealing to God's righteousness. Uh, notice that he doesn't pray this way. He doesn't say, because of my righteousness, deliver and rescue me. Rather, he places all of his trust, all of the weight of his request and the righteousness of God alone. And you and I know that the relationship that we have with a righteous God is based on the righteousness of Christ. We trust in the work of Christ. You see, we see the cross as that great transaction. We see our iniquity and sins laid upon Jesus as the Lamb of God. We see him as the man of sorrows who carries our sorrows and grief. We see him despised and rejected by men, but we also see him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, so that his punishment and death in our place has brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We trust in that righteousness that is given by God's grace and received by us through faith. And that is the basis of praying for God to save us and to deliver us. And that, of course, then leads to the third characteristic of God and of Christ that we read here. That God is a saving God. The psalmist points to God as the God who saves in different ways. Verse 2, deliver me, rescue me, save me. And in verse 3, he mentions the command to save me. In verse 4, he mentions rescue once again. Uh, these words show up frequently within the psalms. 
the save me phrase some 19 times, the, the deliver me some 28 times, the, the rescue me some 11 times. And they all point to God as the God who saves. This is the heart of the good news. It is the heart of the gospel. God reveals himself in his son as the God who saves. And of course, we see this deeply reflected within the New Testament. I mean, we can look at the book of Titus, just as one epistle that Paul has written that points this out. For instance, in Titus 2.13, Paul is reminding believers that they are to wait for the blessed hope, quoting, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Note that Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. Jesus himself is designated as our great God and Savior. But then, if you go into chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we, we read what Paul has written there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here we see that both the Father and the Son together hold and share the title Savior. Because in every way that God saves, in every way that God delivers and rescues, he does so through the person and work of his son. And then the fourth characteristic that the psalmist mentions is a strong and protective God. In verse 1 and 3, he describes God as a refuge, a rock of refuge, a rock, a fortress. All of these metaphors speak of the might and power and strength of God. And then in verse 4, the psalmist appeals for protection from the wicked, the unjust, the cruel man. And therefore, he's pointing to God as the one who protects him. All that the psalmist sees in God, we have fulfilled for us in Christ. And that's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, refers to Christ as the rock. The rock who actually followed the Israelites in the wilderness. The rock who gave them water to drink. And then Paul makes it clear that Christ is our refuge. Christ is where the Father has hidden us. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So all that we ever read in the Old Testament about the might and power of God to be a strong deliverer, all of that is fulfilled for us in Christ. And then we recognize in the context of these four verses that all of this declares to us, uh, all of this is what the psalmist was dependent upon about God, is that he is a 
merciful God. God is a God of mercy. But we need to put mercy into its proper context and place. We have to begin from this perspective. God does not have to fix our messes. God does not have to be merciful. Now let me explain what I mean by that. All of us have likely heard this statement. To err is human, to forgive divine. That's a very common idea. You might have heard it often. It's a very common expression. But understand, it comes from the great English poet, Alexander Pope. It doesn't come from the Bible. And truthfully, uh, it is awful theology. And then often used to promote an awful kind of theology. You see, neither idea, to err is human, or to forgive divine, neither idea is about what it truly means to be God, or what it truly means to be human, in terms of true biblical accuracy. Now, let's be clear on this. As human beings, our proneness to err, to sin, to break God's law, is part and parcel of our fallen condition. It is not at all part of the humanness in which God created us in his image. We err because we're fallen. And in that fallenness, we're not victims. That is to say, you and I are not victims of what Adam and Eve did, because when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, they did precisely what you or I would have done had we been in their place. And with respect to God's forgiveness and mercy, this is not something that God owes to us. God's ultimate moral obligation, the moral obligations of his nature, are to his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, which is to say, God will never be merciful at the expense of justice, because it is unjust to do so. So in order to forgive, in order for God to be merciful, in order for God to give the command to save, as he does in verse 3, God must ensure that justice is satisfied. The mercies of God flow out of God's love in which the Father appoints the Son to be the Redeemer, to satisfy first the righteous requirements of justice at the cost of his own life, such that the Lion of Judah must become the Lamb that was slain. So, brothers and sisters, don't ever use that phrase unless you intend to correct it. Instead, we should be biblical in our understanding of the mercy of God, biblical at all times and faithful to Christ. We ought to say this instead. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. God has put forward Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of his own blood to be received by faith. God has done this to prove and to demonstrate his own righteousness, his own justice, so that one and the same time, God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in conclusion, let's return to the beginning. We said that this psalm presents us a double picture. It's a biographical, a, a spiritual biographical of this old man's relationship with God. And there's also the picture of God himself. And we have begun where the psalmist himself begins. We have looked at the picture of God. And we have said that this theme of this double picture is dependency upon God. This is by God's own design. The life of a believer is a life in which the believer is constantly dependent upon God. But we have to begin with this. We have to know that God is real. That God is truly there. We have to know that God does not exist because we believe in him. Rather, we believe in him because he truly exists. And the proof of his existence when all is said and done, the proof of the existence of God is Christ. Christ is the full revelation of God's existence and character and all that God is. For Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus has also said this, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And here is the statement of dependency. Apart from abiding in Christ, apart from Christ abiding in us, apart from this dependency on Christ, we can do nothing ever of any spiritual good. So in order for us to fulfill our divine purpose, to be those who worship God in spirit and in truth, we must live in dependence upon Christ. We must pray constantly, Christ, help me, because Christ is our great high priest seated at the Father's right hand, and we must at all times depend upon the righteousness of Christ and not our own. We must at all times rest on Christ as our Savior and take refuge in him as our rock. And then, in view of God's mercies to us in Christ, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Amen. And let's pray. O oh, Lord God, who has revealed himself to us 
and his son, our Savior, O Lord Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What sweet, sweet words. We praise you and thank you that you are our great high priest who listens to our prayers. That you are the one whose righteousness has fully delivered us. That you are the strong and protecting God who has ever taken care of us. And there is nothing but the fullness of mercy and grace and all that you have done for us. And so we would pray. Almighty Spirit of the living God, keep this picture of God constantly before us. Keep our hearts and minds fixed on Christ. Enable us to pursue the life of worship, running the race with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And we would pray that we would ever more be learning to live in dependence upon Jesus, abiding in him, he abiding in us, knowing that apart from him, we can do nothing. But Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us do much for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of your church. Let us do much by learning ever more deeply to live in dependence upon you. And this we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen.